This episode is brought to you by Okendo. Over 5,000 of Shopify's fastest growing retailers trust Okendo to capture high impact reviews, showcase customer experiences, and drive conversions. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 117 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee, and today I spoke with Paul Vogie, the co-founder and CEO of Ora Bora. Ora Bora makes sparkling water from herbs, fruits, and flowers using unique ingredients like basil, cactus, and lavender for better tasting experience, all while donating 1% of annual revenue to environmental causes. In this episode, Paul shares his story from growing up as the youngest of five to selling vintage t-shirts in college to working at a venture studio in Denver to quitting his job to focus full-time on building Ourobora in 2019. He talks about how he dropped off some cans of Ourobora to a buyer of Whole Foods at their corporate office desk, which led to being on the shelves just a few months later, the differences between selling to different grocers and how he's had to change his pitch and how he and his co-founder Maddie came up with the name Ourobora. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, we'd love it if you left us an awesome review. And don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning. You can follow us on Spotify or check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. I hope you enjoy this episode. Paul, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. That's awesome. I'm excited to hear your story in building Aura Bora. So where are you from originally? I grew up outside New York City in a small town called Rye, New York, and then it moved a little bit, but ended up ended up on the West Coast for college uh, or shortly before college and never left. Well, what was it like growing up as a kid? I know you were the youngest of five. Yes. Which is not the first time I've said that on this show, which is kind of funny. <laughs> Like, I wonder if kids with a bunch of siblings just end up being entrepreneurs because they're the youngest or the oldest of many, many kids in the house and had to get creative. I always joke. I think there's a couple reasons for that. One, I'll say at least for me, yes, I had a bunch of older brothers, some of which were not just older, but quite a bit larger. And so one piece of it was, okay, maybe you get some sort of toughness or grit out of having older siblings or you have thick skin. I think probably the bigger factor though, is the larger your family, the more like a business it needs to operate. You know, like my, my parents were in some ways co-CEOs. Well, to be honest, my mom was more the CEO. My dad was, I don't know, like COO. a- <laughs> Yeah. That would even be a generous title. We'll call him like uh, associate or intern, but um, all, all that to say- yeah, if you have five kids and they're doing after school activities, et cetera, maybe the, the kids get used to organization lists and things that are later helpful in businesses. You had that like big calendar on the wall or Very something with so. everybody's chores or do when and like it's all scheduled out, right? 
very scheduled. We actually, we had in later years when older siblings were getting their licenses, we had like the car symbols as to like, okay, my father is picking up my brother. My sister is picking up me. My mom is picking up my other brother to make sure that no one was left, you know, somewhere around town. Oh my God. <laughs> Waiting around for the ride home. That doesn't come. Exactly. Oh no. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Lots of logistics. For sure. That definitely could play into entrepreneurship. So what kind of things looking back as a kid, did you, were you entrepreneurial as a kid? I was very much so. Yeah. Um, I was a, a baseball card kid, a lemonade stand kid, a certainly we actually grew up in a big neighborhood with a lot of kids and then extended family had a lot of cousins and I was the youngest in that neighborhood and the youngest of those cousins. So I think, I think that kind of makes you a little bit entrepreneurial because you kind of just need to naturally be uh, this word gets overused, but a little bit scrappy, you know, you're going to be smaller and not as smart and not know as many things as the older kids. But I definitely loved the idea of trading and making something out of nothing. Now, obviously, it was easy to have a lemonade stand when I would just steal my parents' lemons and sell them. So that, that's a much easier way to do business is to have no cost of goods and sell things to your block. But in later years, in high school, I sold socks. And then in college, vintage t-shirts. And shortly after college, I had a, a Christmas tree farm just for fun for a few weeks every winter. So definitely was an entrepreneurial person prior to this. What do you mean a Christmas tree farm? Did you plant these trees yourself or did you cut a deal with a local yeah. farmer? <laughs> so I wish I actually, so I'm in Denver now. This At the time, my wife, Maddie and I were living in Denver and I didn't know that much about altitude, apparently. So we moved into this very old kind of carriage house, like a small 700 square foot house that had a really long skinny yard as a result. And it was just a dirt lot. Like no one had lived here for years. And in my mind, I thought, oh, Colorado, I'm going to plant Christmas trees in this dirt lot. Well, it turns out there's a reason Christmas trees come from the coasts, uh, North Carolina and Oregon, probably being the two most popular, is that it, they just grow faster there. So I quickly looked into it and I was like, oh, it takes like 25, 30 years for a Christmas tree to grow. And I don't think I'm going to be living in this house. That's quite years. the long investment. Yeah. Yes. But after doing all that research, I, I started to connect with a couple of kind of local Colorado Christmas tree people that were saying, hey, as a result of the recession, roughly 10 years ago at the time, there was a huge Christmas tree shortage because a lot of these small farms went out of business and it takes about 10 years on the coast to grow a Christmas tree. So I, I called this Oregon farm that said, hey, we actually lost our the, the person we were shipping to in Colorado. We'll ship you a couple hundred trees if you're willing to sell them. So I said, great. They shipped into our like dirt lot. We didn't have permits or anything, but I figured we're not going to be selling long enough that anyone will get mad. So the first year, I think we sold like a hundred trees. And the next year, I think we sold 250 trees. And the, the third and final year we did it before we moved to California, I think it was like 400 trees. So it was, it was really fun. It was a good way to spend, spend the after work hours in the winter. Yeah, definitely. That's interesting. How old were you when you were doing that? Uh, 22, three and four. Okay. Yeah. And this was with your wife already. It was. Yeah. We got married right out of college. Wow. I know. Wild. So, it was wild shortly thereafter. And she was probably during the Christmas tree farm thinking this was a huge mistake. <laughs> She's like, what did I get myself into? Exactly. He yes. wants to sell Christmas trees. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So was that kind of your first business together? It was kind of, yeah, actually prior to that, I, I so during college, I, was, I got big into vintage t-shirts. I was, I went to college in Los Angeles and there's a big vintage scene there. So I was like, going to the Pasadena, I think it's called the Pasadena Fair every Saturday. The Rose Bowl. No? Rose Bowl, thank you. Yeah. Yes. And the Rose Bowl has just like an amazing vintage collection. Yes. And you can buy a shirt there for $2 or find a shirt in a thrift store for 50 cents and sell it to a kid in college for 30, 40 bucks. So 
Maddie got involved in that business prior to the Christmas tree business, but certainly both of them were messy labor intensive businesses that she probably wanted nothing to do with. The Rose Bowl really is pretty awesome. I went there once and I found a pair of amazing Ray-Bans that were like turtle shell type. And I found out later after buying them for like 40 bucks that they were worth like 300. Nice. <laughs> of course I lost them by then. Oh. Yeah, I know. I'm like, whatever. But um, great, cool flea market type of thing. They have incredible vintage, you're right. And so it sounds like a fun little business you had during the college years. And so what did you kind of do after the Christmas trees and the vintage t-shirts? Where did you end up working? Sure. So the Christmas trees were actually in conjunction with the job. I was working at a small venture studio. They, they kind of operated a little bit like a small private equity firm and that they were buying cash flowing service-based businesses and a little bit in that they were starting new service-based businesses. So not at all in the consumer world. But what's great about that job was one, I really loved the bosses I had. They did such a great job of kind of teaching me things I probably didn't need to know to do the job, but they thought would be helpful later on. And then obviously learned QuickBooks pretty well, but probably most importantly, it was an office that was fully stocked with LaCroix. So that was probably the the most valuable thing that this job did was I, I, that family I grew up in didn't drink soda. So I was kind of like destined to be addicted to sparkling water. Maddie felt similarly at a different office building. And at that job, you know, often there were long days where I'd drink eight, 10, 12 cans of sparkling water and felt like, okay, not just me, my colleagues as well. Like by far the most popular item in this pantry is LaCroix sparkling water. And it's probably the least interesting as in we're all drinking it, but no one's enjoying it. And isn't that kind of a weird dichotomy? I'm drinking 10 cans, but I actually don't really like it. I like it just enough to drink, but not enough to remark on. In that same pantry, we had Kettle potato chips and Jenny's ice cream and Justin's peanut butter and a bunch of great, better for you craft brands and commoditized categories. And it felt weird that there wasn't a craft version of flavored sparkling water. So that was kind of the beginning. And yeah, obviously uh, my bosses agreed because they were also drinking the sparkling water with me. So that, that was the beginning of this whole thing back in 2019. What's not good for you with the, a lot of the current brands doing sparkling water? It, I would say for us, there are certainly like a lot of the brands I just listed definitely have a big, a, a bigger, better for you statement. For us, it had less to do with better for you, although I, I could make a little bit of an argument because the truth is if you're drinking sparkling water, you know, you're already drinking a zero calorie in the, for the most case, or a zero sugar alternative to soda or anything else you could drink, juice, tea, et cetera. For us, it had more to do with, hey, why isn't this very interesting? especially at work, you have a long, long day. Like the least you can do is have an interesting sparkling water experience. So for us, we wanted better and different flavors. If you're drinking 10 cans a day, you're going to get tired of pumple mousse and lime pretty quickly. Could we get rid of kind of the citric acid taste of drinking those products? So you'll know this if you've ever left a can of sparkling water in your car overnight, like you're not drinking that the next day. You know, that's now a science experiment. That's not because the sparkling water is wrong. When it goes flat, it should just taste like water, but they've pumped that can full of citric acid. So it's just a cheaper way to make the product. And then finally, we felt like, hey, this is such a big part of sparkling water drinkers' daily lives. And it's not really a brand they care about. You know, Waterloo, LaCroix, Polar, they're pricing against one another and it ends up just being a commodity. What if we could make a much better product and as a result, be able to brand and sell it as a, a differentiated, more premium offering. And so what's with the citric acid? Why do they even put it in there? It's so much cheaper than water, which is hilarious to even say. 
The, the most expensive part of the manufacturing process of sparkling water is actually getting the water sparkling, which is you know ironic. We have all this carbon in our atmosphere, all this carbon, all this CO2 out there, but it's really hard to get it in a bottle and pump it into a, uh, a huge tank of water. So the best way to carbonate something, i.e. the most efficient, fewest dollars way, is to fill that tank of water with a ton of citric acid to make it as acidic a mixture as possible, such that when you carbonate, you don't have to carbonate for very long. You can move the cans along the line faster. And, and that is why the large companies do it. And they think most consumers won't notice the difference because it's sparkling and it's cold. They won't really notice until it's warm and not sparkling. For us, we if you're drinking a lot of this, as I was and still, still do today, and it's just kind of annoying. It gives you kind of a salty soda-ish aftertaste to the product. So all that to say, citric acid is just used strictly for no taste reason, only for to keep it economically viable. So they don't have to spend so much time and money pumping exactly. it full of yes, yeah, yep. to make it sparkling. Okay, interesting. So you've kind of at what point were you like hmm, I have like how, what was your aha moment? So Aurora? It, yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, we, we bought a soda stream, so drinking all those cans of sparkling water during the work and then going home and wanting to make kind of tinker with our own flavors because we were truly just tired of the options available. And I was, this started as a bit of a joke. You know, we had like a group of friends that would come over roughly once a week and we'd order Domino's, which I grew up in New York. I'm ashamed to say but we'd order Domino's. <laughs> so I'd, uh, I'd put like a white napkin over my forearm and say like, hey, enjoy this lemongrass coconut sparkling water. And we made this with like various essential oils and things we could find uh, in our pantry. And it was a joke. Like, hey, here's a purposely pretentious sparkling water for your, you know, $1 pizza slice. And after enough weeks of that, friends were like, hey, we know you're doing this as like a, a gag, a bit of a joke, but I, I would buy that. that. That tastes better. And the big difference is like, yeah, if you're making your soda stream, like it's not filled with those chemicals. They are differentiated flavors. The carbonation feels more real. It feels far more natural because it's aromatic due to the herbal extracts. So that was kind of the aha moment of having enough friends say, hey, we agree. Like we're not drinking 10 to 12 cans like you, but we're drinking like three to five cans and we're in the same boat. We're kind of tired of the options. Interesting. Well, and so since you were kind of adding these flavors to a water, why not just, was that an idea at all of like, oh, we'll just create really creative flavors that you can put in water yourself with your soda stream, like yeah, instead I, of bottling the water in sure. cans. Yeah. Oh, one, I, I would love that for a few reasons. One, it'd be way cheaper to ship Two, be <laughs> yes. far, you know, far uh, more sustainable as it, you know, mm -hmm. takes for like gas truck, trucking heavy water is just hard. A few reasons it doesn't work. So if you're like a big coffee drinker or, or I've had this conversation with people that make beer, like water is the biggest ingredient in coffee and beer and sparkling water. And it makes a huge difference. So we found this out firsthand. I, I went down that road at first and realized, oh, wait a second, on any given day with our sink water, it, this will taste different because municipalities have various levels of how much you know, how much calcium, how much magnesium, how, how much do we let into the water stream of our citizens? So we were living in Denver at the time, which actually has some of the, the uh, country's best water. We now live in San Francisco, which also has some of the country's best water, but the two water sources taste totally different, not to me, to a water sommelier. So for our very kind of temperamental herbal extracts, we, we found that out the hard way the first time. And then once we expanded manufacturing, we had two locations. And we had to totally switch the formulas based on location. Now we use reverse osmosis water to prevent any PFAS or fluoride or any sort of microplastics getting into the arrangement. 
But the other thing that the reverse osmosis does for our formula is it keeps the water consistent. So theoretically, if we're using reverse osmosis in California or using reverse osmosis in Pennsylvania, the water is the same. So we can use the same ingredients to make the same product. But at first, I felt like I was going crazy. Like, why does this taste so different? Which all of my friends that are kind of in the coffee world were like, of course, you changed the biggest ingredient in a huge way. How would it not taste different? But as is a theme of our story so far, is just me being foolish and finding things out the hard way that anyone could have told me if I just asked. But you just didn't ask. You're like, let's just figure it out. Yeah, let's just see what happens. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of normal. I think a lot of founders, it's hard to ask for help. It's hard to even know what questions to ask sometimes. Right. I, exactly. If you knew what to ask, you'd ask. But instead, you're just kind of going off of baseline assumptions of, hey, this this sounds roughly right. Right. And you're like, eh. Who would even know the answer to this anyways? I'll just go and figure it out. (laughs) Exactly. At the time, I didn't know any water sommeliers. I'm happy to say I know four now. I know four different water. I didn't even know water sommeliers exist. So when I first heard it, I actually laughed because I thought the person was making a joke. Right. It sounds like a joke. It sounds like a joke. He's like, no, this is an actual thing. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. That's a, that's pretty awesome. So when did you realize that you should start doing this full time? Like, you know, when did you decide to take the leap? It was, it was summer of 2019. So I, I quit my job roughly three years ago. Um, and this was at the venture studio you were working? Yes, it was. Yeah. We were living in Denver and felt like, Hey, we can, we can kind of survive on one salary between Maddie and myself. The irony to this is very shortly after quitting my job, Maddie got a job offer in San Francisco where we certainly cannot survive off one salary <laughs> Right. and quickly went from, Hey, let me try this sparkling water thing to, okay, I've got to make this work, which was great. It, it is a better city to launch a beverage company in and was definitely the pressure necessary to like make things happen. So we sold our first can in the fall of 2019. So it's been like 28 months of selling these products and it's, it's been a blast, but all that to say, we took the leap probably earlier than most would and yeah, ended up working out. So I'm confused. You went to San Francisco before you, you, well, first off you said, okay, I'm ready to start doing this full time. Maddie's like, Oh, I got a job full time in San Francisco. You guys moved to San Francisco. You're like, shit, I can't do this full time anymore. I've got to start making money so we can pay this crazy rent. Yeah. What job did you start working full time? And did you keep that job while you launched the business in that? No, sorry. Good good question. No. When, when we moved to San Francisco, that's when I said, okay, I, I, at the time I had like two small little consulting things that X number of hours per week as we were getting ramped. But by the end of 2019, I said, Hey, I have to do this full time. We had some savings to live off for a few months. And the goal was, can we get enough traction such that we can raise money and I can pay myself a small salary? So by June of 2019, that was the case. So there's about five months of living on one salary in San Francisco, but just so you were able to raise some money before June so that you could start full time. Exactly. Yep. Interesting. How much did you have to raise? to get the business going? Yeah. So it started with, uh, when we were doing this first production runs in 2019, before we had, you know, a label or a a name, we just had these weird concoctions in our kitchen. We raised money from almost strictly blood relatives. It was family and friends, but I'm the, the young, I've mentioned that big family. I'm the youngest of five siblings, the youngest of 12 cousins. So took money from brothers, sisters, cousins, aunts, uncles, parents, in-laws, my grandmother-in-law, whose house I'm in right now. So it was a, a big group effort, which honestly has made 
has been further proof of like, okay, I have to make this work because Thanksgiving will be awkward for the rest of my life. If not, um, <laughs> yeah. the, you better make it, you know, you got to make this uh, company win or you're going to have a very interesting yes. holiday season for the rest of your life. <laughs> for sure. Yes. Shortly thereafter in 2020, once we were like selling the product and living in San Francisco in the beginning of the summer, kind of June of 2020, we raised about $500,000 from angel investors in consumer goods. So that was like, that was when I, I started taking a salary, it was June of 2020. And a lot of those folks had been either former operators that had exited consumer packaged good businesses, current operators, you know, small time investors that love beverage. Yeah, absolutely. So you were full-time, because I ask about this full-time thing, because I think a lot of entrepreneurs are wondering when to take that leap. I think a lot yeah. of them take it way too soon. You know, yeah. they're like living off their 401k and it's like, whoa, let's pump the brakes. You know, there's a lot you can do part-time or there's the one that just, you know, they um, wait, 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 wait. And they're ultra conservative on when they take that leap. So I always like to help people navigate that. No, I, I would say I was certainly in the category of too soon. I, if, you know, if we had known, Hey, we're going to move to California. I'm like, okay, well then I need to keep a job here. I, I would say there is a lot you can do beverage. I'll say any fast moving consumer goods sold in a store is a little bit unique in that it takes so much actual in-person labor of getting it on the shelf, convincing people to buy it, merchandising, et cetera, that, if you are working another job, you probably do have to have someone on the street. Obviously, you're probably the cheapest labor you can find. So yep. I, I, I'll say uniquely in CPG, I think you probably have to take the leap earlier than you would like to, unless you immediately get in kind of a marquee chain that can help you out. And that's really hard to outsource too, because you're oh. not only, you're probably not the cheapest option, but you're definitely the best seller of your oh, own sure. company. Yes. So you're the best option to do the yes. selling in person. You're the best seller. I would say like when you're selling any physical product, there's kind of three phases that we have seen. And the first phase is they're not actually buying the product because they like the product or like the numbers. They just want you to get out of their face. Like you, you're persistent. You're kind of harassing them. You're annoying them every day. We're going to buy your product. If you just stop annoying me. Right. Then it turns into, okay, they're actually trying your samples. They like the product. They like the packaging. They like the ingredient profile you get on the shelf. And that's kind of like phase two, which I'll say phase one was kind of 2019 into early 2020. Most of 2020 was phase two of, Hey, we really like this product. We think our customers will too. And then somewhere in the middle of 2021, it feels like we graduated to, Hey, we really like the data that we're seeing from other stores that carry your product. And that's where you can really scale of, okay, they don't need to hear, you know, my story every time. Yeah. It's just like fundraising, right? Like your pre-seed round, your seed round, and then your series A, they're totally different, right? Like the series A wants to just see all the numbers and scalability and all this stuff. And the seed rounds and the pre-seed are like, so tell us your story, your passion, you know? Exactly. It's series A there. We no longer care about your soda stream. We don't want to hear about you drinking cans. Just tell us the the chase. Yeah. So you raised a little bit of funding. You were able to go full time. When you approach these retailers, I think that's a big question mark for a lot of um, founders wanting to start a consumer brand. They're like, where do you start? What, What were some of the first retailers you tried to sell to and why? Gosh, so we got really lucky in this regard. Uh, I'll say, you know, most food and beverage folks like want to start with Whole Foods. It's it's not just great because they can have a more premium price point and they have the kind of consumer you probably want for your product. They're also just a lot of stores. So if you get in a small cluster and you do well, you can expand into more stores. For us, that very first trade show, I was traveling back and forth from Colorado to California. I was in Boulder. We had our very first trade show. There were a thousand cans of our product in the world that we had canned that morning. Myself, 
and a 16-year-old kid named Colin canned it at like 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. And then we're ready for the trade show in the afternoon. The hope was, okay, if we get a good reaction at this trade show, we're going to swipe our credit card and do the first production run. And if we don't, I'll have to go find a job. And this was fun. And I'll probably drink the rest of these thousand cans in you know 100 days. Luckily, at that trade show, there was someone that we knew to be a buyer from Whole Foods. Now, buyers from Whole Foods are very coy with their name tag. So I thought I knew what she looked like. I was like, I think that's her. She was kind of hiding her name tag. And she actually never came by our booth that I saw. Like maybe I ran to the bathroom and she came by when I wasn't there, but she never came by the booth. So the next day I drove to the Whole Foods office here in Denver with a case. And I never told a explicit lie. I told a couple of lies by omission, but got to the office and said, Hey, I was just at the Boulder Innovation Showcase and, and the buyer was there and she wanted to, you know, in, in a, yeah, she tried a bunch of products and I was just bringing by the samples. And the person who had the desk was like, oh, okay, you know, the, the buyer, and they, they named the buyer's name. Yeah, she was there. She wanted you to bring by some samples. And I just replied, yep, she was there and I have samples. And they're like, great. Like her desk is like, you know, second on the left. She'll, she'll be back in an hour. You can leave it on the desk. So I left it on the desk, wrote a quick note. And I was just kind of crossing my fingers, hoping, hey, these are kind of chaotic things. Maybe she doesn't remember what she tried and what she didn't try and who she met and who she didn't meet. And fortunately for us, I sent a quick email saying, hey, thanks for stopping by. Enjoy the samples. And she quickly wrote back like, can't wait to try them. Great to meet you. And I was like, well, I, I know we didn't meet, but anyway, it worked. She liked the samples. And that was our first big partnership was one region of Whole Foods here in the Rockies. Wow. So what happened after she like called you and was like, okay, we want to put these in the store. Like how much time between you dropping off those cans on her desk yeah. and your kind of engagement with her? Were you... I Sure. I dropped off those cans the third week of October, 2019. I bet I followed up the first week in November and the third week in November and the first week of December and the last week of December. And eventually got a reply, her saying, Hey, whole team tried them. We really liked them attached as an author. Wow. So it was like MIA until the big news of like, Oh, by the way, you've been emailing me. I haven't responded, but I gave them to all my friends. That has been one of the biggest lessons I'll say so far. Like, yes, you know, being persistent, but also patient is key. Or like, I'll say, some mix of polite and persistent, wherever the line is between those two things. But uh, the, the third or fourth email circled back doesn't mean that they actually aren't interested. They might just be busy um, far more so than you think. So with her, that was exactly the case. She'd attached the authorization. There's some comedy to that story as well in that I, I got that email saying, hey, you're going into Whole Foods the third week of March, 2020, congrats. Obviously we did not hit the shelves the third week of March. Uh, it took like three-ish months while they were getting their staff in place and selling toilet paper and the beginning of the pandemic was craziness. But what was great is that email had an authorization letter from Whole Foods. So I printed out like 40 copies, left it in my glove box and dropped it off at every retailer in the Bay Area saying, where else are you sold? And I said, oh, here's an authorization letter from Whole Foods. And you know, your, your batting average goes from like 100 to 400 just with that letter. Totally. Very smart. That's interesting. I love, yeah, that's exactly how you have to do it, right? You leverage every tiny little nugget of anything that you get and you just run with it. That's awesome. Your story of dropping off the cans at, at Whole Foods and, and that um, interaction with the receptionist is very much reminds me of like part of my story way back a while ago when I was trying to break into the modeling industry. And I went to the receptionist and I told the receptionist, I after being rejected all day long for all these meetings at the, all these top agencies, the last one I went to was one that was elite and they'd never emailed me or responded to anything. And so I went to the receptionist who's like, how can I help you? And I just like 
I don't know why I said it, but I was like, I have a meeting with Karen Lee, which was this like incredible <laughs> legendary scout. And they were like, oh, you do what time? And I looked above her head at the clock and it was four. So I was like, oh, four o'clock. And she's like, oh, she's looking through her calendar and she can't find me in there. And she's like, oh my gosh, I don't know why you're not in here. Um, Let me go see what's happening. And I'm like, well, okay. You know, and so I'm like pacing in the lobby as she goes to get this woman who I've never met. And I don't, you know, and she's comes back. I was about to leave. Like part of my head was like, get out of here. You're crazy. You just lost your marbles. Like just dodge out, take the elevator, the emergency exit stairs, like something before they like call the police on you. This is so crazy. And then the other part was like, no, just chill. Like, what if this, like, play this out? You have to play this out. And so before I could make up my mind, the door swung open and this woman, Karen Lee, was there. And she's like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Forgot about our meeting. Yes, she apologized and was like, I'm sorry. I forgot about our meeting. I was like, it's okay. Don't worry. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Did it work? It did. I ended up signing a three-year exclusive contract and dropping out of college and modeling for like quite a few Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's an amazing story. Yeah. Wow, I love that. That's a very short version of a very long story, but um, yeah, that's how I got that meeting and that meeting changed my life. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the receptionists are the unsung heroes. They actually do need to filter through a lot of people, but if you can just sneak through, there's a yeah. lot of good things that can happen. If you look innocent enough, you know, yeah. and you play yeah. your cards <laughs> and just see what happens. That's right. Yeah. The worst thing can say is no, and you already had a no. So exactly. Nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. But it was funny to tell her later the story. Like, by the way, I never had a meeting with you. you did you did tell her this? The yeah. second it was dry on the contract. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it was like years later. I was terrified to tell them the truth years later. And then I finally oh told my agent. And he was like, no way. That's freaking awesome. And I'm like, oh, shit. I wish I told you this earlier. If you thought it was cool, you know, I thought you'd fire me if like you found yeah. out <laughs> that I actually snuck my way in here. Wow. So anyways, so that's amazing. You, you guys got into Whole Foods eventually, obviously not in March, right? It got pushed back. Got pushed back. Obviously early pandemic was just a, a weird time period, no matter what. But if you're previous to that, I was like going into stores, meeting managers, buyers, cashier, cashiers, et cetera, selling them sparkling water. And fortunately we had locked down a couple of like local distributors and then one national distributor just before the pandemic, like last week of February, first week of March which was great because they then stopped taking on new products for six, seven months as they were trying to figure out how much Purell do we sell? How many canned goods do we sell? How many rolls of toilet paper do we sell, et cetera. So as a result of those distributors, we were able to keep growing during the pandemic, not in person anymore, but a whole lot of phone calls and emails. Um, and that, that has largely been the case for almost the entire history of the business until you know the last six or seven weeks when things have opened back up. What was the name of the trade show that you went to? In Denver, the first yeah, one. it's called Naturally Boulder. They have a mm. pitch slam every year, and then while the pitch slam is going on, they have a small gymnasium of like forty or so products showcasing. Nice, because I know there's Expo West. I think Expo yes. East. <laughs> yeah, we have since done Expo East and Expo West. Those the the difference is Expo East and Expo West to show I think is like five thousand dollars minimum. Naturally Boulder, I think it was fifty five dollars. So that was easier. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Okendo is the new standard in customer reviews, and they want to make it simple and easy for you to collect user-generated content to use for your Shopify site. Retailers that use Okendo have seen an 81% increase in conversion rate when customers interact with reviews and UGC on their site. 
With Okendo, you can showcase UGC and reviews on your e-commerce site to build trust with your customer base and compel buying action. Okendo works with some of Shopify's fastest growing brands like Skims, Carbon 38, Byte, Magic Spoon, so many more. So if you'd like to join these high growth brands, head on over to go.okendo.io slash stairway to CEO to book a demo and take advantage of getting 30 days free on Okendo. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. At what point did your wife decide to join? I mean, you guys are, you guys are co-founders, yeah. right? Yeah. So she, uh, my wife is very, very creative, which if you've seen our cans or social media or website, yes. or any word of copy anywhere, you're seeing some of her labor. Nice. She worked for free, I'll say on the weekends and after work for the last two years. She had two different jobs, you know, keeping us afloat in the Bay Area mm-hmm. and then actually just officially joined Ourobor full-time six weeks ago. So relatively recently. So she was the breadwinner for a while to help you get this off the ground. Well, both of you, right? And yes, so I've got the lavender cucumber actually right here. This is one of my favorite flavors. It tastes really good. The peppermint one threw me off. I was like, whoa, what is this? What is this? But every other flavor, like the cactus rose and like, of course, you do have very interesting names and flavors and the branding is really cool and the color palette, really, really like unique very, very unique. And they taste great. Um, and I like the more narrow, tall can too. Us too. You know, we, we got good advice from a person that ended up being an investor actually, where he said, Hey, you can fit more cans on the shelf. If they're just thinner, you know, if you're going to start his point was saying, if you're going to start with five flavors, which most people say, like start a beverage company with like fewer than four flavors. Um, he said, if you're going to start with so many flavors, make it easy for them to buy all five, make them like thinner so you can fit in more space, which ended up being great advice for a lot of reasons. And so where did the name Ourobora come from? Yeah, this is my, my small point of pride. I would say almost every other creative thing is directly the result of Maddie. And if you met Maddie, you would know, okay, she is like a hundred times as creative as Paul. We loved the word Aura. We have these hippie-ish ingredients. We're obviously living outside of Boulder, Colorado. Couldn't trademark the word aura. I was reading a book on marketing about rhyming things and how rhyming, you just remember something like 10 times easier than if it's not rhyming or anything with rhythm you, you remember, remember easier and loved that there was kind of a tongue in cheek aspect to Aura Bora in that it sounded like Bora Bora and water companies like using valleys, rivers, mountains, lakes, islands to name themselves. We knew we were going to have a more earth-friendly brand. So Aurora Borealis is in your head as something earthy. Most people don't know why, but it's just a word that is in your brain. So we thought, okay, if you're only going to come across our product, you know, every once in a while in the early days when we're not that well distributed, let's pick something really memorable. And of course, Maddie loved those two four-letter words that you can make a nice square with on the packaging. So that, that was the, the beginning of it. Can we make something really memorable? So, I mean, were you guys sitting down? How did, what was the process of coming up with this name? Because I always like, what were you guys, was it one night you guys were, had a pencil and paper and put down a bunch of words? Was it like months of thinking about it? Like, how did you, what was the process? I think it was about two weeks. We ultimately chose from, if I remember right, like 311 names. We had 311 names and then. That you guys came up with yourself. Yep. 311 names that came up with ourselves called. I don't know, probably 20 friends narrowed it down to kind of, even of those 311, we had personally like 10 or 12 favorite. And then we had probably like our final five. And a lot of it came down to what do we think we can trademark? 
what are their similar brands, what feels unusual in the category. Obviously, with everything else, we wanted it to really stick out. So, hey, can we use ingredients that are really different? Can we have flavors that you can't find elsewhere? Can we have a can that jumps off the shelf in its size and its color and its illustrations? Similarly, with the name, we felt like, okay, can we pick a name that almost sounds, you know, we have these kind of delightful but peculiar products. Can we pick a delightful but peculiar name that feels like it almost fits as a beverage name, but feels a little bit different? So we felt like Ourobora fit the bill there. Interesting. Yeah. I always find it really fascinating because I think people get caught up in naming, you know, it takes a long time to come up with a name and because it's such a commitment, you know, you don't want to, you can't choose the wrong name. Totally. Yes. You choose the wrong name and you got to reprint 5,000. A lot of pressure. Yeah. Right. So it's like, how do you know when or which is the right name? I will say not everyone has this experience. And I think a lot of people want to have this experience and don't. We certainly, like we, we, when we had those final 10 names, Ourobora wasn't the name, Aura was. And I said Ourobora and both of us felt like that's it. Like we're done. We're not gonna look at any other names. Oh, that is definitely so you just the name. know, it's like marriage. You just know. A little bit. Yeah. I'll say those, <laughs> those were two instances in my life where there was no, not even 1% doubt. Like this is the name. That's the whole thing. Yeah. Not yeah. 1% doubt. That's a... I think that's a good thing to go by. But I think if you haven't experienced it before, it's so hard. Like I remember my parents being like, oh, when you meet him, you'll just know, you'll just know. And I'm like, what the hell does that even mean? Like, stop. It doesn't make any sense. I don't know what you're talking about, but yeah, then it happened and you're like, well, yeah, why wouldn't I marry this person? (laughs) Right. Totally. That's exactly how I felt. I agree with you. Yeah. That's awesome. And so how has it been with your spouse running a business together? I have certainly heard horror stories of people working with their spouse of feeling like, oh man, we've lost a lot of great aspects of our relationship or now our work life is more stressed and just kind of the melting of the two. Uh, I'll say, you know, knock on wood, if Maddie and myself, we felt like this is kind of a dream come true in a lot of ways. It's been great having, you know, probably more context for each other's work life than you would otherwise. I think a lot of people are married for many, many years and they have some vague idea of what their spouse does every day, but doesn't really see the details. Whereas like, I, I am literally seeing the details of, of knowing like, oh my gosh, I have a extremely, extremely talented wife in Maddie that I get to see and benefit from like the, the fruits of her, her talent. So all that to say for us, it's been great. You know, I think maybe the more challenging aspect is you don't want anyone on your team. You know, now we have, it's us two and 11 others. Like you don't want any of those 11 employees feeling like, oh gosh, you know, I, don't know who to talk to because the two founders of the business are living together, et cetera, but making sure that everyone feels comfortable of like, Hey, here is how this works. Uh, I, I think has probably been the, the most challenging thing to navigate. You know, you can interview our employees separately. I, I think most of them have felt like, okay, this is not an unhealthy work environment as a result, but we definitely don't want people to feel like, Oh, I can't work for a married couple. That's just too weird. Well, yeah, I imagine like some couples, you know, you're so used to kind of the banter between each other. And sometimes other people can interpret that as like, oh, my God, they're fighting when really you're maybe not. You're just like have a different way of communicating with each other. You've known each other for a long time. Uh, Yeah. So have you had to change how you communicate? I'll give small examples. Yeah, we're on Slack, like every other business in the country. And oftentimes someone will ask me something. I'll say, hey, like, you know, ask Maddie about this. And I think at the beginning, people were like, aren't you guys in the same room? Like, why don't you, why don't you just ask her? And I think just having kind of formal processes of like, yeah, but that's not how this works. Cause 
now you have like we have some sort of advantage because we're in the same room, et cetera. And with remote work, that's a whole nother conversation. But I think making sure that, hey, despite the fact that we have the same last name on the org chart, like there are processes and ways that things should uh, should happen, i.e. a project that Maddie is helping out with is not any more important just because Maddie's working on it than if somebody else was. So that has certainly been like a, we, we have had to be extremely deliberate and extremely t- transparent. Every single person we've hired, like we've both interviewed them separately in separate uh, at separate instances and tried to say to them like, hey, we know that like there's an elephant in the room here. And I think just inviting people into like, okay, got it. This brand wouldn't exist if the two of you weren't married. So I, I can't really complain about you being married because it's affording a job, but also knowing, hey, it's totally reasonable to have complaints. This will not be the same as when two of your bosses at your last job were not living together and you could probably navigate things a little more so politically. So I don't know. We have nothing to compare it to. I, I have certainly felt like we've put the right processes in place, but every, every week is different. So what's something you've learned the hard way? Maybe the, the general way of me saying this is there are like, there are no cheat codes. There are no life hacks to this. I grew up with a lot of brothers. We played a lot of Mario Kart and there's like a couple of shortcuts in Mario Kart that you can find, you know, once you played the game 900 times, you can find it. Or now in the internet days, I'm sure kids are finding it a lot faster. Back then we literally stumbled upon it. And I remember stumbling upon it and feeling like, oh my gosh, like you can go 40 seconds faster. That has not been the case, at least in consumer packaged goods that we have found ever. So there is truly no, sh- no shortcut to this. And I'll give an example. O- oftentimes, you know, we're, we're growing into a lot of stores. So the, the first year we started with zero stores, we ended, this is in 2020, we ended with about 700 stores. In 2021, we started with 700 stores, ended in about 2,000 stores. This year, we started 2,000 stores. We're hoping to end around 5,000 or 6,000 stores by the end of the year. And I assumed with a lot of that scale, that we would kind of graduate and things would you know, be multiplicative and kind of exponential growth. And though we have had exponential growth, it has still felt like each and every retailer, each and every door has been its own promo strategy, merchandising, its own sales call, et cetera. And I don't feel that we've ever had any sort of huge acceleration in process. Now, we have gotten a lot faster at it. We have employees that also are a lot faster at it. And that part's great. But it just feels like if, if you're getting into consumer packaged goods and you think there's kind of a software hack, like stick to software because that is infinitely scalable. And the, the day that this kind of settled was I was in a retailer account. You merchandise the shelves. By that, I mean, make sure we're faced up with the right price tag with coupon codes. If it's a coupon month, ideally in a refrigerator by the counter. And I saw a merchandiser for Nabisco and I saw a merchandiser for Nestle in the store. And I thought, okay, if two of the largest food conglomerates in the world still have to do what we're doing, this is just the nature of this business. There is no shortcut to this. You just get bigger, you know, one account at a time. So that has probably been the biggest learning experience because I I just assumed like tech, there would be eventually. Right. You like rinse and repeat the process to get into the next retailer. And that's just not the case. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Even from a sales perspective, I guess, because you're saying each store kind of looks for something a little different and you have to tweak totally. your pitch. Yep. Yeah. There are stores that, you know, they, they only care about gross margin on the shelf. There are stores that only care about velocity on the shelf. There are stores, and you kind of know this as a consumer when you're in there, there are stores that only care about variety on the shelf. And there are stores that only care about, hey, how differentiated is this from the retailer down the block? So you're constantly changing based on what their priorities are. 
Wow. Yeah. That's a lot to navigate. I mean, and how do you even find out that before you get into these meetings to know what to pitch? So I, I, to your point of like, what did I learn the hard way? Again, this is just like something I've, I don't know, been fall. fall, uh, I've stumbled and fallen on my face enough times to now know, like go to that store or get pictures of their shelf and ask friends or acquaintances you've met in CPG and said like, Hey, is such and such retailer more of a stickler on margin, more of a stickler on promo? Do they like to see this? What kind of flavors, et cetera? Like I've gotten a text that literally said, uh, it was from a friend saying, hey, make sure to pitch such and such buyer your citrus flavors. He loves citrus flavors. So there is a lot of kind of behind the scenes things that can happen. Not dissimilar from if you're applying for a job, you should probably know like, yeah, where your employer went to college or maybe their favorite sports team or like various things that can give you a leg up. There is plenty of that in retailer talks of let's see behind the scenes what we can find. And then of course, going to the store, you can learn a lot based on how they're merchandising their shelves. Yeah. Got to know who you're selling to for sure. sure. Yeah. What other, so that was kind of, uh, you know, hard lessons learned. And I think in startup world, that's, that's almost comes with every single detail, you know, like you're learning everything for the first time. What are some major mistakes that you've made along the way? And and what have you learned? Uh, So yeah, this, this one is also, it's actually specific to anyone selling a physical product in retail, you know, channels really matter. So when I say that, if you're listening and you're not familiar with that, like Whole Foods and Sprouts are natural channel retailers. Albertsons and Kroger are conventional grocery channel retailers. Target and Walmart are mass retailers. Costco and Sam's Club are club retailers. Food service, i.e. if you're at Starbucks and you buy a drink, that's a totally separate thing. And to me as a consumer, I just thought all those are places where you could buy a can of sparkling water. So they're all kind of the same. And that's just not the case. As with anything, you should pick a lane and focus on a lane. So we have since done that, where we are really focused on natural channel retailers, Whole Foods, Sprouts, The Fresh Market, Fresh Time, Erewhon, Bristol Farms, Lassens, Lazy Acres. Name a zip code, I'll tell you a natural grocery store in that zip code. But at the beginning, I was just so excited to get sales. You know, those first hundred stores in San Francisco, some were bodegas, some were health clubs, a couple were restaurants, a few were delis, a few were grocery stores. And you have all sorts of different pricing. And then they all have different distributors and they all have different ways they merchandise the product. And it just makes things way more complicated. And frankly, now I know you later get evaluated based on the data from those first hundred stores, far more so than any group of hundred stores. So do yourself a favor and like pick a hundred stores that are very similar and get really good at selling the product in those stores. And then from there, you can rinse and repeat in other channels once you grow. But the biggest learning lesson for me was realizing, oh my gosh, you know, we're, we're in Sprouts in California, but we're in Brookshire Brothers in Texas. And if you've been in those two stores, they could not be more different. And to me, they both have registers and they both have grocery bags, but that's not the case. So for us, it was definitely, hey, focus on one channel or one arena and do really well and then work your way to the others. Interesting. That sounds like a, a smart strategy for sure. So I saw you guys on Shark Tank. You know, Mark Cuban was straight, like worried about the margins and, and Mr. Wonderful wants a royalty, of course, like five cents per can, not shocked about that. And then Robert gave you guys an offer 12% for 150K, but then you guys negotiated a little back and forth and he, uh, he said, all right, fine. How about 200K for 15%? And you heard 12%. I did. Yes. <laughs> got all excited. And then Maddie was like, no, he said 15. What are you doing? And then you're like, yeah, let's just do the deal. <laughs> yes. Yes. It ended up being a, a very memorable clip, which is great because they, 
they overfilm. So you want to be the very best you can be is memorable and entertaining. So luckily that I think that ending piece ended up being entertaining. And then there's actually a secondary factor of I've watched the show, of course, for years, but I didn't realize how loud it was in that room. And even more so during COVID, they had all of the sharks 12 feet apart from one another. So as a result, they had these speakers below their chairs that you can't see filmed. So we're turning because you can never see two sharks in the same time because they're so far apart. So I had turned and I was looking at the far left kind of where Mark was sitting. And I just heard like a male voice and I just kind of misheard Robert, et cetera. So obviously none of this is clear in the clip. What's great about it is retailers love bringing it up. I can't tell you the number of times I've been on a retailer call and we'll kind of come to terms of like, okay, we're going to do this coupon promotion. You're going to get these flavors, et cetera. And the retailer will, you know, tongue in cheek say like, are you sure you heard that right, Paul? Or do you need me to repeat that? Oh my God. Um, it's fine. We're like, You're never going to live it down. Everyone no, I will never, sure you heard me. <laughs> exactly. I will never live that down. There are far worse things to uh, have to live fun of for. Yes. I'll take it. <laughs> That's awesome. And so how has it been having Robert as a, as an investor? Yeah, I'll say the Shark Tank experience as a whole is, you know, we're smiling about it right now. It's like a fun show. There are, there are shows that people don't like talking about and being on Shark Tank, everyone loves talking about it. Retailers love talking about it. They love asking, hey, tell me, is Robert as nice as he is behind the scenes? Or Yeah, he seems know. like a cool guy. He seems yeah. like the nice shark, you know? I, you know, I will say, I actually think after Ben on the show, I think they're all nice sharks. And Well, they have the yeah. different personalities. That they exactly. I think- I think like Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful, just when that camera turns on, he's almost smirking a little bit when he's being yeah. mean. Yeah, yeah. It's his um, thing. It's like, yes. he knows that that's what people expect. So he, this is my card. Yeah, exactly. This is my shtick. I need to be, you know, kind of a jerk. Um, yep. <laughs> so yeah, it, it has been super helpful. I'll say probably the most helpful thing, honestly, has been consumers that probably otherwise wouldn't have tried our weird sparkling water flavors, but they thought like, okay, you know, Lori and Daniel liked him on the show. So I guess I have to give it a whirl. Like they, people, they really uh, admire or, or kind of trust their opinion and they've given flavors a shot. And I think in particular, like natural channel consumer goods, there is this bent towards the coasts and kind of bent towards higher income classes. What's amazing about Shark Tank in general is it's like almost a perfect uh, like microcosm of the country. You know, it is watched by young people and old people, lower class, middle class, upper class. It's almost perfectly split on race lines based on its Nielsen rating. So all that to say, yeah, we weren't, we aren't in a ton of stores in the state of Missouri. I'll say it's probably one of our lowest states for a number of stores, but we get orders from folks that watch us on Shark Tank that otherwise a lot of consumer goods companies just ignore. And they think those consumers, I'm not really focused on them, I'm focusing on the coasts, which is a little bit elitist. And I have felt like Shark Tank has opened us up to actually most of the country, middle of the country, all four time zones, high income, low income, old, young, et cetera. That's awesome. And so it sounds like, did you see a, a huge bump in increase in sales after the show? For sure. Yes. At the time we weren't in as many retailers. So we saw a little bit of bump in retailers, just kind of reorders the next few weeks, but online was probably the biggest impact of, yeah, people coming to our website, we, we get their email address. We're now remarketing to them. They, they bought our flavors that we were selling then. And now they've since gone on to buy our new flavors we come out with every other month. What's been the most challenging moment um, that you've faced? Like, has there been a moment where you've maybe questioned whether or not you should be doing this? Yeah, it's kind of like uh, two or three times every 48 hours, um, <laughs> the, which I would say I think is like pretty normal. You know, you're, you're, 
you're selling a lot in this job, whether you're selling a retailer or a employee to leave their current job to come to your job or a you know, future current investor or eventually the board on a new product line. And I think after a while, if you've just been selling anything for a long time, you wonder like, is this, like, is this how this goes? Should, should it just be this hard to sell everything or should it just be like lightning in a bottle? And I've taken a lot of solace, to be honest, in older, more respected, more successful consumer goods entrepreneurs, like asking them like, hey, is this just how it feels like? And I got a great quote from someone I really admire who said, hey, like, this, this is just what this is like. Like, that it would be really weird if you didn't have those doubts. So I guess I'll answer your question. The question is like, what was the hardest, hardest thing? Or how often do I think that? I think the times where I have the most doubt are when everything is kind of boiling to the surface at the same time. Maybe we're in the middle of a fundraise and we're also rolling out a really important natural retailer. And we also just hired two employees. And we also just uh, you know had a, a marketing initiative that needs more dollars to fund. And it just feels like, this is either so close to impossible that we should just call it impossible, or I must be doing it wrong. And I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, they end up realizing it's the former of, hey, this is just a really, really difficult thing to do. And there's a reason so few businesses make it. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely imagine when things are feeling super overwhelming, that those are the moments where you're like, whoa, how much more can I handle? Like, this is just overload where there's only so many things you can do in a day. So yes, times are overwhelming. You think, I don't know what to do. I just can't do this all. Trying to go back in my notes because someone on my show said everyone is a salesperson. Everybody, especially if you're starting a business, you're in sales. You're, you're selling to your customer. You're selling to the retailers. You're selling to your investors. You're selling to your employees. It is certainly, uh, I, I love selling. Like I mentioned the Christmas yeah. lemonade stand, et cetera. I, I have since met, I'll say like, you know, stereotypically more introverted founder CEOs of consumer goods companies. And I actually, I almost find that they are like just better salespeople, i.e. they're more economical with their words. And as an introvert, they kind of know like, hey, what is the thing that gets me to talk? What's the thing that gets me interested in chiming in? So I am constantly jealous of a few introverted friends of like, oh man, they, you know, when investors talk to me in the back of my head, I think they're thinking like, this guy's just all talk. You know, he's just a talker. He talks fast. He's, you know, whatever. Grew up on the East Coast. I feel like he's selling. Typical these. sales dude. Yeah. yeah <laughs> typical sales guy. If he wasn't selling sparkling water, he'd be selling used cars or something else. Whereas, and again, this might just be my own insecurities. I think when they listen, when investors or retailers hear from other friends that are just a little more reserved. I think they think, oh my gosh, if this person's opening their mouth to tell me about this, it's so important. I almost have to lean in and listen closer. So No, that's your insecurity for it might sure. Be. It might be. I'm I think sure. it is. I think because also energy plays a really big factor. And I've seen this before. I was actually, I worked at an accelerator called Launchpad in LA. Um, and a very amazing founder who's grown, who's grown to build a very, very successful business really struggled with fundraising in the beginning because she was really kind of not energetic in her pitches. And people were like wondering if she was actually excited, but she was actually kind of introverted and maybe didn't want, like she wasn't a salesperson, you know? And so she didn't really come off super excited and passionate. And of course, when you're doing your pre-seed or your seed round, that's what they look for a lot of the time. And you've got to be able to bring that energy. And so I would say that's probably a big challenge maybe for introverts um, is to, to get that going. Yeah, I, I am married to an introvert. So Maddie, Maddie hates selling everything. You know, she wouldn't. <laughs> My husband's the same way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hate sales. 
She wouldn't even sell you something that she knew you needed, you know? (laughs) Totally. I know this will help you, but I still don't want to tell you about it because I just don't want to come across salesy. Exactly. (laughs) So funny how opposites attract in this way. Complimentary skills. Awesome. Well, Paul, thank you so much for sharing your awesome story. Um, Two things before we wrap up. Final advice for aspiring entrepreneurs or business operators tuning in. And what is next for Ourobora? Learn as much as possible before you need to commit to something. Like I, I ended up, you know, turning the pages yellow of a few really great books. Like one was written by Seth Goldman, who started Honest Tea. One was written by Mark Rampola, who started Zico Coconut Water. And one was written by Jamie Schmidt, who started Schmidt's Deodorant. And all three of them ended up being kind of like somewhere between a field manual and a Bible of starting a business. And I think getting into the researching the industry you're trying to launch in as much as possible can save you so much heartache and so many mistakes. I have since thought like, oh man, I wish one of those books said X, Y, or Z, I wouldn't have made that mistake. So first advice would be, hey, it's really tempting to, to your point, quit your job, start selling the product, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you're really well served by learning way more than you might need, I'll say. The second thing, what's going on at Ourobora, obviously you can, you can find our products on our website, ourobora.com. We're sold on Thrive Market and Imperfect Produce, Whole Foods, Sprouts, a number of grocery stores. New with us is we have this uh, limited time flavor program we're really excited about. So every other month we come out with a new flavor. So if you have a kind of a local ice cream parlor, you probably go there sometimes and you want your old favorite. And sometimes you want to try something new. We're, we're trying to do a similar model here of, hey, if the something new flavor ends up being really popular, we'll bring it out into retail or keep it on the website for longer. So uh, right now we're selling a lime cardamom flavor. It'll be sold out probably in the next 72 hours. And then in June, we're coming back with a a flavor that, you know, to be determined, I won't name it here, but they're really great. It's a fun way to keep consumers engaged. And we obviously we take requests. That's awesome. So to check back in on the website and see what you've got going on, new flavors launching every other month, it sounds like. Every other month. Yes. Hopefully eventually we get to every other, every month, but it's a little operationally taxing. So for now, every other month. All right. Awesome. Well, I'm going to continue enjoying my lavender cucumber today. Thank you so much for sharing those. And thanks for being on the show. Yeah, Lee, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.